This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Producer's note. I would like to thank Sean H. from Colorado and Leroy J. as they both pointed out, very nicely, a mistake that I made on the last episode. Harold Betty Stark, the CNO of the United States Navy, was the Chief of Naval Operations, not Chief Naval Officer. I can almost assure you, this will never happen again. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 224, Climb Mount Nataka, Tojo Gets His War. Last time, Secretary of State Cordell Hall beyond tired of Japanese duplicity, as the Americans were able to read the messages coming from Tokyo to Ambassador Nomura and Special Assistant Kurusu, and knew that an attack of some sort was coming to American territory, coupled with a deadline. All the while, the two representatives spoke of peace, issued what would become known as the Whole Note on November 26, 1941. The document was proposing that Japan pull all of its troops out of China and Indochina, that only Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government be recognized in China, and the document, once worked out, was to be signed by all of those involved or affected by such a withdrawal. The USSR, Japan, the United States, Britain, China, and Holland. 
Of course, Nomura and Kurusu told Hull that Tokyo would never go for this, but Hull would not be moved. He had had enough. In the back of his mind, he had already determined that this entire situation would have to be handled by the United States military. To be fair, the military leadership in Tokyo was thinking the same thing. That same day, November 26th ended, with the United States consulate in Tokyo advising all Americans to leave Japan as soon as possible. The next day, November 27th, Thanksgiving Day in the United States, FDR met with Nomura and Kurusu as they had requested and Hull had made possible. However, just before this meeting, Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall and CNO Chief of Naval Operations Betty Stark had sent the President a memo that read, Japan may attack the Burma Road, Thailand, Malaya, the Netherlands East Indies, the Philippines, or the Russian Maritime Provinces. The most essential thing now, from the U.S.'s point of view, is to gain time. The United States knew there would be war, and they seemed mostly unfazed by this. But at the same time, the country's leaders also knew the United States military was not ready for war. Time was needed, and if the politicians could gain them that time, the more forceful could the American response be towards the Asian aggressor. As for America's condescension towards Japan's desire of conquest and their military might, the U.S. would soon enough find out that their assumptions were deadly inaccurate. FDR, ever the consummate politician, welcomed Nomura and Kurusu into the Oval Office with a smile and an offer of cigarettes. However, on the inside, he was as angry as any other human being who knew he was being lied to, to his face. So he started out by saying that the American people desired peace in the Pacific, and it was his job to make that happen. But how could he possibly do so with the latest development of some 50 Japanese transport ships invading southern Indochina? As in, I mean to say, what good is it to talk with you fine representatives when your countrymen back home keep invading new territory? Yet Nomura and Kurusa's hands were tied. Not only did they know nothing of the details of the coming attack, but the whole note not unexpectedly, had been received in Tokyo as an ultimatum and a humiliating proposal. And it must be said that the note made the work of the pro-war faction that much easier. Either Japan was to pull out of China and Indochina, thus ignoring all that had been sacrificed to gain those lands, or stand up to the Americans and the British, as they tried to dictate to the rest of the world and worse, pit the various Asian countries against each other. At least this last part was proclaimed by Prime Minister Tojo a few days later. The point being, even those who wanted peace, like Foreign Minister Togo, now knew there would be war, for Japan could never completely back down, having invested so much blood and treasure. As one Japanese Army General Staff officer wrote, this makes it easy for the Empire to cross the Rubicon and determine on going to war. That's great. Just great.
And yet, the whole note was not an ultimatum, for Hull would tell Nomura and Kurusu that day, with FDR watching, that his statement was clarifying America's position, and that it was their hope that the goals set forth in the note could come about by negotiations, and that we are not necessarily asking that it be effected immediately. What would not be known for many years later was that the Japanese leadership hid the details of the whole note from everyone else in the government, that Washington hoped to work this out by talking, if that were still possible. Hence, to those not in the know, it seemed that America was demanding this is how it was to be, period. For there were many in the government that were tired of the land war in China and were seeking any excuse to shut down the entire operation. While meaningless conversations continued in the Oval Office, CNO Stark and General Marshall sent another series of warnings to various outposts throughout the Pacific. The talks have all but become meaningless that an overt aggressive act was expected by Japan soon. Of course, no one knew where. That it was important for the United States Navy and Army to be ready, yet not to undertake any action that could be determined by the Japanese as aggressive. For now, the Pacific outposts were to be ready with defensive positions and to increase their reconnaissance. The messages from these senior military men ended with that attacks were possible on the Philippines, Thailand, or Borneo. But as the tension had been building between Tokyo and Washington throughout 1941, there was also a storm forming over Washington and Oahu, but this one was made up of mistakes and misinterpretations of America's defenses and Japan's military ability. A large piece of the storm came on the evening of November 27th, when, after Washington's military leaders sent their message out to General Walter Short, the Army commander protecting the U.S. naval fleet while it was in port at Oahu, he, General Short, replied back that his status as to the island's defenses was at alert number one. Now, to General Marshall, back in Washington, this meant Oahu's military status was the following. The occupation of all field positions by all units, preparing for maximum defense of Oahu and the Army installations on outlying islands. Hence, Oahu was ready for action. But that was not the Army's defensive position on November 27th. Back on November 5th, General Short, after talking with his staff, had reversed the numbering. So when Short told Marshall that he was at alert number one, he was saying that Oahu was at the lowest setting for a general defense. Alert number one now read, This alert is a defense against acts of sabotage and uprising within the islands, with no threat from without. General Marshall and his staff would not receive the revised numbering system until March 1942. So, Washington thought Oahu was at its highest level of defense, but the opposite was true. 
Later, after the war, General Short would give many rather hollow reasons as to why his defenses were not better prepared. Not that it changed anything. To be clear, between January 24, 1941 and December 6, Short received 56 pages of warnings. 25% of those came between December 1st and December 6th. Indeed, some of those warnings specifically mentioned preparing for an air and or submarine attacks and what General Short was doing to counter such attacks. However, to pull back from blaming General Short too much, more than a few passages from his boss, General Marshall, stressed that should Pearl's defenses be able to hold out for the first six hours after Japan declared war or outright attacked some possession, say the Philippines or Guam, the chief of the army staff felt that the harbor would be safe from that point on, for surely the army and navy at Oahu would raise their defenses to the point of being ready for anything. Hence, with this picture being painted by Marshall, this could partially explain why General Short thought he was ready for come what may. By this time, the last few days of November 1941, the Japanese task force, the two carrier divisions, en route to attack Pearl Harbor, were almost 2,000 miles, or 3,218 kilometers away from their starting point. On November 29th, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox sent a message to FDR, who was trying to spend a few days resting in Warm Springs, Georgia, a spa town because of its mineral springs which flowed constantly at nearly 90 degrees Fahrenheit. His hope was that the warm water would be good for his mostly useless legs. He had been visiting the place since 1924. Knox wrote that, We know of a deadline approaching. However, the Japanese seem to be laying low for the next few days. Of course, the leaders of Washington did not know exactly why this was, but could guess that the Japanese transport ships near southern Indochina were heading someplace specific. While FDR rested his body and mine, preparing for troubling times, Secretary of State Hall was conferring with the British ambassador, Viscount Halifax. It was his opinion that to plan too far into the future in regards to the Pacific was a waste of time, as the Allies did not know where the Japanese were going to strike. Also that, once Japan took some sort of military action, there would be total war in Asia. Hence, they would then be free to advance anywhere, in any direction. No, the United States could not stop the coming attack, because no one knew where it would land. All Washington could do was wait. As for using negotiations to gain more time to bring America's military strength up to par, that was now only a fantasy whose time had come and gone. War was coming, and some poor American sector was about to be visited by the brutal, merciless warriors of the Japanese Empire. On that same day, November 29th, Emperor Hirohito met with several of his past prime ministers. They basically all said that Japan should not go to war with the United States. It was better to wait out the economic stranglehold 
painful as it was, and continue with negotiations. It's thought that Hirohito was hoping one of the men sitting before him would have the gravitas to inspire him to break with tradition and force the government onto a course he wanted, namely not to clash with the Americans over China, which wasn't even working out the way all had hoped for when that particular adventure had started. As the emperor failed to get his motivational speech, he seemed to think he needed. The Japanese carrier fleets and events moved ever closer to the point of no return. The next day, November 30th, Tokyo sent a message to its consulates in Manila, London, Havana, Washington, Hong Kong, and Singapore, in order that all decrypting machines and code books be destroyed. It also mentioned that American consulates throughout Asia were doing the same thing, that an emergency situation was imminent. Later that day, Tokyo sent a separate message to its ambassador in Berlin. It read, The conversations begun between Tokyo and Washington last April now stand ruptured, broken. In the face of this, our empire faces a grave situation and must act with determination. The message then told the ambassador to tell Hitler and Ribbentrop, the foreign minister, that lately England and the United States have taken a provocative attitude to say that they, the Anglo-Saxons, are planning to move military forces into various places in East Asia and that we will inevitably have to counter by also moving troops. It went on, say very secretly to them that there is extreme danger that war may suddenly break out between the Anglo-Saxon nations and Japan through some clash of arms, and add that the time of this breaking out of this war may come quicker than anyone dreams. Alas, even with each other, the members of the Axis powers desired to be seen as the victim. Of course, America's magic system picked up this message and again told its Pacific commanders that an attack could come at any time, probably against either Siberia, Thailand, Burma, Malaya, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Singapore, and or the Netherlands East Indies. But again, Washington was not crediting Tokyo with the wherewithal of attacking or invading Hawaii, which is semi-understandable. But the same message also stated that it is our naval power that is a primary deterrent against Japanese all-out entry into the war as an Axis power. Hence, Hawaii should have been on the list. To further cloud this time in history, as December 1941 opened up, the American West Coast went into overdrive in preparing the area for an attack. Drills of all kinds were undertaken, but the emphasis was on air raids and artillery maneuvers, which begs the question, if the United States West Coast was considered a target, why not Hawaii, some 2,481 miles or 4,000 kilometers closer to Japanese waters? Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. 
and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Back in Washington, the talks, as insincere as they were, on both sides, continued. Secretary Hall, on December 1st, told Nomura and Kurusu that with the Japanese fleet of transport ships moving along southern Indochina, which clearly threatened all the countries nearby, that this forced the United States and the British and the Dutch to keep additional troops in the area, troops that could have been used against Hitler. Was Japan comfortable with this? At the very least, he continued, the United States would not be driven out of Asia. And really, Tokyo did not need to hold a knife to America's throat. The empire already had a seat at the table to talk over their differences and expectations. To this, Nomura, again not knowing the details of the coming attack, rejoined, it was the United States that was treating Japan as a non-equal, and it was the United States that should be asking itself, what was Washington's ultimate goal, considering the harshness of the whole note? But Hull had no profound answer to this. He was just going through the motions, as he knew the two Japanese representatives were. When the meeting was over, Hull talked things through with his assistant. He said that the president had told him he wished he knew if the Japanese were really going to attack some American outpost, or were just trying to shake his resolve to get the economic restrictions lifted. Hull's reply was that, I had no doubt that sooner or later, depending upon the progress of Germany, Japan would be at our throats. As for me, when I knew I was going to be attacked, I prefer to choose my own time and occasion. I asked the president whether he had any doubts that Japan would attack Siberia if the Germans overcame the Russians. He said that he did not. Hull then told the president it would be best for the Allies, for the world, for the United States to just go ahead and engage in a war with Japan, subdue it, and then all of our resources could be used against Hitler, the world's real enemy. Again, don't let the lack of respect for Japan's ability to wage war, get past you. When their conversation was over, Hull was convinced that FDR still did not believe that Japan had the capability or resolve to face the United States in a toe-to-toe slugfest. Of course, as for what FDR really believed, that he kept to himself. On that same day, December 1st, thousands of miles or kilometers away, 
the Japanese government was holding its fourth imperial conference. The purpose of this was to approve Japan's war with the United States, Britain, and the Netherlands. It was a most unusual meeting, according to Prime Minister Tojo. He later told his secretary, I could see with my own eyes that the emperor highly values peace. Inexcusably, in one way or the other, I had to request the imperial sanction for war. It was extremely regrettable. In a quiet voice, the emperor talked about the treaty between Japan and England of 1902. Furthermore, in the imperial edict proclaiming war, the sentence, Indeed, this is not my will, was not in the original draft. It was explicitly added at the emperor's command, which was as far as Hirohito was willing to go. Prime Minister Tojo had his war. December 1st may have brought sadness to Hirohito and pity to Tojo concerning his emperor's behavior at the meeting, but as for Admiral Husband Kimmel, commander of the Pacific Fleet, he was about to receive a punch in the gut. Kimmel was told by his intelligence officer, Edwin Layton, that Japan had just changed its military cable signals. This indicated an additional progressive step in preparing for operations on a large scale. Now, this had happened before over the years, and in time, the United States would figure out the new codes. Still, it would take time. Not good. Kimmel's reaction was, Okay, well, what's the latest we know? He asked Layton for the location of Japan's various fleets. The answer came the next day, December 2nd. But Kimmel noticed that carrier fleets 1 and 2 were not on the list. When asked why, Leighton replied, Because we don't know. Officially, he said, insufficient information, but it all boiled down to the same thing. What was Kimmel's response to this? You don't know where carrier divisions 1 and 2 are? No, sir, I don't. I think they are in home waters, but I don't know where they are. Kimmel was, understandably, not letting this go. Do you mean to say that they could be rounding Diamond Head, a volcanic cone located on Oahu's southern coast, about 10 miles or 16 kilometers to the southeast of Pearl Harbor, and you wouldn't know it? But Leighton, trying to hold on to some self-respect, replied, I hope they would be sighted before now. To Leighton's thinking, he was not overly concerned, because it was the standard practice of large ships when in home waters to use low-power radios to contact shore stations, hence their location cannot be determined. Why let the enemy, or potential enemy, know that you're not at sea, and possibly posing a threat? Moreover, the United States Navy's combat intelligence was convinced that the carrier fleets were at home, based on the first air fleet's wireless operators, who were being picked up, in Kyushu. They had, to deceive the Americans, purposefully been left behind, so the American listening posts would hear people and types of signals they had come to know well, and the ruse worked beautifully. With the Emperor's lackluster blessing, the attack of Pearl Harbor had been approved. 
So on December 2nd, the Japanese general staff sent a message to Admiral Yugaki, chief of staff of the combined fleet, under Admiral Yamamoto. He was ordered to open Imperial Naval Order Number 12. This commanded the first air fleet, which itself was about to cross the international dateline along the 180th meridian, to attack Oahu. However, the attack was not to take place before midnight on December 6th. Yugaki then radioed Chuichi Nagumo, the First Fleet's commander, though he did not know as much about naval operations as he should, and told him that Imperial Naval No. 12 had been approved. This was accompanied by the phrase, Climb Mount Nataka. At the time, Nataka was the Empire's highest point. Of course, conquering a great height gave one glory, but it was done at great risk. For the person, or in this case, the nation, would have to come down sometime. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So this is my last episode before I head to Europe for three weeks. Um, I do have another episode recorded that I will be releasing the week of July 9th. Uh, It's an interview with the two authors of the um, book that's about to come out, uh, Indianapolis. Um, It's an incredible book. It was a great interview, so that'll be coming out. So hopefully that'll hold you over. And if I get the chance, depending on internet connection and me being able to work my phone in another country, I'll do some live stuff, some videos, um, uh, try to put something on the Facebook of the World War II page. Um, just to let you know, in case anybody wants to try to come out and say hi, um, even though we're going to be moving pretty fast, uh, I will be in Paris from July 2nd to the 6th. I will then be in Ajaccio from the 6th to the 9th. I will then be in Florence from the 9th to the 14th. I will then be in Rome from the 14th to the 18th, and then I will be in Athens uh, from the 18th to the, to the 22nd. On the 22nd, I take off, I'll land and spend a couple hours in Copenhagen Airport, and then head back home to the east coast of Virginia. So uh, I'll try to keep updates going on the World War II Facebook in case anybody wants to come out and say hi. That would be pretty cool. Um, so we'll just see how it goes, and then I'll get back to it. So again, just thank you to everyone who listens to the show. And as far as those locations I've mentioned, um, I haven't done any advanced research. If any of you know of any cool World War II things that should be seen, related things that should be seen in those locations, send me a message, an email, uh, something on Facebook or whatever, so I can try to squeeze it in, because there will be some downtime uh, that I would love to check things out. Um, The reason for this tour um, is because my partner, uh, podcast partner, Cameron Riley, we've done... Uh, a lot of different shows, and so we just wanted to combine them all together and invite some people along to go see some sites. Uh, just in case you're interested, we've done The Life of Caesar, The Life of Alexander the Great, The Life of Augustus, which we just wrapped up. Uh, we'll be starting on The Life of Tiberius when we get back. We have started a Renaissance, uh, Renaissance podcast Um the Cold War podcast, sorry. And we also do another podcast called The Bullshit Filter, where we take various topics and, and, and examine them and look at them a lot more closely, 
you know, the stuff that you've been told uh, in the news or reading books doesn't isn't always necessarily the truth. Sometimes it's a blatant lie. Uh, we're currently doing the history of the drug, the war on drugs. Um, so we just decided to take all these episodes, all these uh, different sub- subjects, put a big tour together. And uh, hopefully I'll see some of you out there. Hopefully some of you listen to some of those other shows as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it'd be great to see some of you guys put some faces with names and that kind of stuff. So once I get back and I recuperate, um, we'll jump right back into this. And obviously the very next episode when I get back will be the um, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs> 